Christianity is founded on the idea that God speaks and that his people hear him. But what does it mean to say that God speaks to us? The answer to that, however, is a complicated series of answers nestled upon one another because that seemingly simple question, what do you mean God speaks, is actually composed of many threads. Yet the answer to each of those threads together form the starting point from which Christianity weaves its narrative of the world, its people, and of everything there is. Welcome to What Do You Mean God Speaks, where we explore important stories, ideas, and insights in Christianity for the skeptics who want to understand religious perspectives to the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs and everyone in between. I am Paul Sungo-jung, and this is our ninth episode, What Do You Mean God Speaks? Part 1, The Threads of the Real Question. When we ask, what does it mean for God to speak to us? Our question is not really about God, but about us. We are asking, how do we know that God is speaking and know what God says? In fact, how do we even know whether God speaks at all? And this is a rather complicated question to answer. Now we can point to examples of people claiming to hear God, or at least some gods or other, though it should be stressed again that God with a capital G and gods are very different ideas. So we can point to examples like the poet Homer calling upon a goddess to recite his epic of the Iliad, or Confucius who taught that at 50 he knew the will of heaven, or that moment in the Bible when God, whose name is I am that I am, or I cost to be what I cost to be, speaks to Moses from the burning bush and tells him to go and free his fellow Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. And today, people hike to commune with nature or meditate to encounter their spirit guides, while Christians close their reading of the Bible with the words, This is the word of the Lord. But these are examples. They do not tell us what it would be like for us to hear from God. In fact, we don't even know whether these examples are legitimate in the first place. What do they mean when they claim that God spoke to them? What did they do to hear these words from God? And how did they know that what they heard were in fact divine? First off, the obvious, hearing from God isn't necessarily about physically hearing an audible voice. People who hear from God often claim that it's hearing from the heart or the inner voice in our mind. But that isn't too helpful since that seems indistinguishable from our own thoughts. And we have many thoughts, many feelings, many inclinations going inside our minds and hearts so that the real question is, why would we think that one of those is God speaking to us? On the other hand, Christians believe that God speaks to us through the Bible. But again, why should we think that is true? And even if we do believe that God speaks through the Bible, the Bible says many things and people sometimes disagree about what it's really saying, so how do we know what God is saying at any particular point in our lives? And the confusion behind these questions stem from the fact that they are all tied up with a number of other related questions into a rather messy knot. So what we will be doing in the next few episodes is to try and untie the knot and look at them strand by strand, thread by thread. And that means 
we'll have to first leave off the questions about the Bible and even the questions about how God speaks personally to people, whether audibly or in their hearts or otherwise, for the rest of this episode, so that we can examine the very first thread, the first question. What does the statement, God speaks, mean? To put it in the simplest terms, truth is God speaking. Now, I don't simply mean that everything God says must be true. That just means that God does not make mistakes and God does not lie, which is obvious. What I mean is, every truth is God speaking. And I should note here that in Christianity, truth is linked with goodness and beauty in God, so that any search for truth also invokes the search for the other two. But that's another topic. Now, there's a Christian dictum which states, All truth is God's truth. This condenses 2,000 years of Christian thinking and writing. Apostle Paul implies it in his letter to the Romans in the Bible when he writes that all people are capable of knowing what is true and good so that everyone also knows God even when they don't glorify God that they know as God and worship idols instead. A few centuries later, Augustine exhorts Christians to recognize truth even if they are from pagan sources because these truths are from God. And similar position is affirmed in increasingly expanded forms from figures in the Middle Ages like Thomas Aquinas to those in the Protestant Reformation like John Calvin. The implication of this age-old dictum is twofold. First, Christians are to recognize and affirm truth wherever it's found, whether it's from the sciences or literature or the arts, from other intellectual traditions or other religions, and even when it's from evil and wicked people. And second, not only should Christians affirm these truths, they must acknowledge that these truths are from God himself. Thus, every truth, in a sense, is God speaking. And that means Whatever truth that you hold, if it's really true, is what God has spoken, at least on that matter. Now I admit that this is a rather mundane definition, but we must start from this, because otherwise we'll be left with a fragmented, if not entirely wrong, understanding of what Christians mean by saying that God speaks to people, and that in turn will lead us to ask all the wrong questions when we try to figure out how we are to hear God speak. But then, why should we understand every truth as from God? The simple answer is, because God is the creator of all things, and that has implications. In our first episode, we examined how one of the ways we misunderstand the idea of God today is that we have a tendency to slot God in a compartment. Many of us nowadays seem to believe that there's a specific and rather limited context in which we encounter God or where God plays a role. We think God is there only when we experience some unexplainable and fantastical events or some deeply religious personal experience or when science reveals some impossibly ordered aspect of nature. And this leads people to limit where and when we should expect God to speak, that is, if God speaks at all. But Christians have historically thought about and related to God in the same way we relate and think about reality as a whole. In the simplest sense, God is reality. One of the ways Christianity articulates this idea is its teaching that God is being itself, and is also truth, goodness, and beauty. 
Thus, every time we strive for goodness, every time we are moved by beauty, and every time we seek truth, we are to that extent, in some limited way, touching the presence of God and participating in the speech of God. And all of this is because what Christianity really means by saying that God is the creator is more than just that God constructed the universe in a distant past like a builder or an engineer. Rather, a better analogy is that God is like an author, continually telling a story, and that this story is all of reality itself, which is even now unfolding. And that means everything, every entity, every event, every possibility is part of the story that God is speaking. But why think of truth, any truth, as God speaking, that is, speech of any kind at all, let alone God's? Well, consider what a truth is. There are statements of thoughts and words, a speech in the broadest sense, in that speech communicates. Now, there are truths that are beyond words, but even then, truth still communicates, even if by means beyond words. And according to the Bible, all of creation, everything that exists, communicates, they speak, even without human words or speech. Psalm 19, for example, says it like this. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim His work. Day unto day port forth speech, and night unto night declare knowledge. They have no speech, no words, no voice, but still their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Thus, for Christianity, reality is like a speech. Now this is not to say that our world is made up purely of sounds and words rather than physical things. It is to say rather that reality communicates. That is its most fundamental character. And what's really interesting is that one viable way that physicists think about the universe and everything in it is to see everything as being made out of information. And I mentioned in our fourth episode how historical root of the word information is intertwined with the philosophical idea of the Logos. And for Christianity, the Logos is God speaking. Now, you may find the idea that our world is made out of information strange, and so did I. But think about this. You may have heard about a hypothesis that our entire universe is a computer simulation. If so, we are, and everything in our universe is, codes, programs, and information. Of course, most of us do not think we live in a computer simulation, and I don't either. It's a philosophical hypothesis. But this possibility was raised in the first place and couldn't easily be dismissed because what science describes at the end of the day is the information that compose our world. Just that. And this is why the old Christian way of understanding reality as kind of a speech is not as far-fetched as some people may think. After all, that is why our thoughts and our words can describe what is real or what is good or what is beautiful. Because reality communicates. That is why science can describe truth about nature, why our talk of justice or goodness matters, and why poetry is beautiful. Everything is God's speech in that everything communicates truth. And thus, every truth is God speaking. All of that was the first thread. The question that really interests us, though, are probably the other threads. 
Because how do we get from the Christian position that every truth is God speaking to the story of Moses hearing God from the burning bush or the prophets declaring, thus says the Lord, or the Bible as a whole for that matter? So we need to move on to the next thread. First, how do we know the truth? Because to say knowing the truth is not an easy task is a massive understatement. Philosophers have considered the question for millennia. We've been asking what are the means, the rules, the steps, the methods to reliably get at truth. There's an entire field dedicated to this topic called epistemology. Nowadays, we tend to think of science when we are asked how we can know any truth. That is, if we think we can know any truth at all, and many of us are beginning to be skeptical on that too. But science is essentially a highly refined form of a more general way we've sought truth, which is to know and learn things through experience. In the more recent years, a Catholic philosopher named Bernard Lonergan outlined this general way in four distinct but interconnected stages. So in science, we gather data through observation, experimentation, and others, uh, other experiences. Based on that data, we form a hypothesis or a theory. Then we rigorously test the hypothesis with further observation to confirm or disconfirm it. Often, we are also faced with practical or ethical question that is raised by the truth that we've confirmed. For example, if science confirmed that humanity is causing climate change, what ought we to do about it? But science is a particular instance of a more general pattern, a more general method. Say you're a manager of a department in a company and your department is performing poorly. You then, if you're a good manager at least, begin paying attention to what is going on. Uh, you check the numbers on work hours, productivity, and evaluations, and conduct interviews. You then come up with some ideas or insights on what is happening. Maybe you have employees who are unqualified, inadequately trained, or have bad work habits. You then test your idea by going over their work. Then suppose you find that that's not true. They know what they're doing and they're quite diligent. Then your investigation notices something else. They tend to perform poorly right after you give them their tasks. Some employees, in fact, have complained in their interviews that your instructions aren't clear. So you have another employee, a veteran that you trust, to give out the instructions instead. And performance immediately rises. Then you also have an ethical quandary. Do you acknowledge your fault in this before everyone and change your ways? All this is to say that how we get to the truth and what flows from it is a key issue even in our daily lives. But specifically from the Christian perspective, how we get to the truth and what we do with it is in a significant way how we interact with God, how we take in what God is saying. But all this talk about how, about which method gets at truth, is forgetting a very important and what I think is even more fundamental issue, which is who. Who, as in the person who is getting at the truth. Even the question of methods, scientific, philosophical, or otherwise, is really a question of what a person ought to do to arrive at the truth. Thus the deeper question is, what kind of persons can find or discern truths? Actually, that question is just one aspect of an even broader question, which is, what kind of persons seem to be able to reach and somehow take hold of a larger world, something that is grander, good, beautiful, true, beyond themselves, 
And for Christianity, that is in the most general sense taking hold of what God is speaking, everything that is real, true, good, or beautiful. Who are such persons? What is it about their character and their habit that seem to connect them better to reality, for the lack of better words? And that's why we are drawn to figures we think are reaching beyond themselves to something larger, deeper, or wider toward what is true, good, and beautiful, whether they are leaders, intellectuals, artists, or innovators. That's why even those of us who aren't interested in science are often fascinated by figures like Newton, Einstein, Darwin, or Hawking who seem to reveal a grander scope of truth. In fact, this is what explains why we're interested in what such people said about a number of different issues even when they're talking about topics that are completely outside their field of expertise, which should have struck us as odd. After all, a physicist, for example, may be trained at finding truth about quantum mechanics, but be terrible at discerning what is going on in their personal lives, let alone at making fair judgments on social, political, or religious questions. But this psychological tendency that we have to be drawn to such persons, I believe is founded on a very true insight, which is, a person is the conduit of all truth. By this, I do not mean at all that we human persons get to decide what a truth is, We may decide that we are free of gravity, for example, but I say reality will beg to differ and reality will win. What I mean is that because we are persons, any truth or goodness or beauty are received by us as persons and are made manifest by persons. So that our search for truth, or say our striving for the good, is inseparably tied with our search for persons who can reach and reveal what is true or good to us. What kind of persons are they? What kind of character and virtues do they hold that enable them to do so? Let's list some examples. Uh, They must be truthful, for one thing, and abhor lying. They should be fair-minded and just in everything they do and consider. They're humble to learn, but be firm in what they set out to do. They'd be wise, insightful, prudent, yet decisive. They'd be courageous in adversity, yet merciful and kind, and they would they would love, love truth, love life, love justice, love mercy, love people. Otherwise, their motivation to reveal truth or do good would be suspect and be easily corrupted. The kind of character of such persons who will reach out and reveal truth consistently and in everything rather than in one specific area in which they are trained are kind of truth in themselves. In fact, a more important kind of truth. Because there are truths, then there are truths that generate other truths. What I mean is that these persons manifest truth, truth about their character that reveal to us how we can reach truth how we can bring forth what is good or beautiful. Their character generates other truths. And if every truth is God speaking, such a person who generates truth, who continuously speaks truth, would manifest God. Christianity teaches that humanity is created in the image of God. And many people have understood this idea as describing humanity's special difference with other animals, which spectacularly misses the point. The image of God is not really about our relationship with animals. It's about our relationship with God, that we can manifest God, that the kind of persons who speak truth, 
who do good, who make living worthwhile and beautiful, are the closest approximation to God who is reality, whose speech unfolds everything that is real. That is why in Christianity, a human person, Jesus Christ, is also God himself. The problem, of course, is we aren't like Jesus. That is, we don't speak truth, bring forth good, and make lives, our lives and those around us, worthwhile all the time. This isn't to say that we must know all truth, be omniscient to manifest God. We are limited by our circumstances, times, and our physicality. But the question is, are we persons who reach truth, do good, and make life beautiful in every way that is possible within our current limitations? And if not, then we are missing the mark. We are failing to manifest God. And that is a Christian idea of sin. Thus, every truth is God speaking, but we as persons do not manifest what God speaks as we should. But sometimes we go extraordinarily closer to doing so. Perhaps you've had an experience or know of someone who had an experience like this where you become truthful to an extent you've never been. When you realize who you really are, where you've been or everything that you could have been or should have been and where you must go, assuming that this realization is indeed true and not a delusion, that's the moment when your thoughts correlate to God's thoughts, as far as you could from where you are anyway, when your very person approximates God. That's the moment that God speaks inside you. And for those who's familiar with Carl Jung's work, this may remind you of the idea of the self. Now in Jung's psychology, the self is not what you identify as yourself. That would be your ego. The self with a capital S is in a sense more than you. The self is encountered when you integrate different aspects of yourself, your consciousness and unconsciousness, everything that you are and have experienced, and the encompassing whole that you experience, far greater than what you have been, is the self. And according to Jung, psychologically speaking, the self is equivalent to the experience of God. Or to put it in a different way, what you can encounter is limited by, well, you. So the greatest truth that you can encounter in your limitations is when you bring together everything that is true within your reach, everything within and around your life and everything that you are, to face them unflinchingly and truthfully. That truth is your closest approximation of what God is speaking and the kind of character that emerge within you and enable you to do so, to bring together that truth honestly and truthfully a character greater than who you ever were is the closest manifestation, limited as you are, of the person of God who speaks. But beware, for the Christian message is that even our closest approximation may very well be a wrong one. They can miss the mark and sometimes miss it catastrophically. In fact, in Carl Jung's psychology, the self can be the most dangerous thing in our psyche because the self is also the most powerful. It can just as easily lead us to delusion, megalomania, or worse, bring others into the orbit of our delusion and destroy them along with us. And according to Christianity, this is a sin that arises when we see God in a wrong way. Because sometimes it is not God who speaks. But that is for another episode. And of course, we've only covered two threads. 
Yet now we are finally ready to explore what was happening when the people in the Bible encountered God and heard Him speak. So join me for the 10th episode, What Do You Mean God Speaks? Part 2, When God Speaks to You When You Least Expect It, which will be followed by the 11th episode in March, How a Nightmare Plagues Every Dream of God's Kingdom. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoy this content and want to hear more, please subscribe, follow, and share, or leave a comment or a question because it would help me to see how the series is doing. In the meanwhile, I will be waiting here.